everybody. What is going on? You know what time it is. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining. Today, we are taking a look at Numbers 15. And a good question for us to ask is, what does it look like for us to prepare well? Now, that question might surprise you coming out of this chapter, but hang with me. I'm going to show you why I'm pulling a question of preparation from the text. Now, throughout various stages of my life, studying or preparing for tests and exams has looked different. When I was young, maybe in middle school, a teacher would give out a study guide, probably one page, front and back. You'd use the textbook to fill it out. I'd review it over and over again, and then mom or dad would quiz me until I had the information down. But when I was an English major in college, studying looked like reading a lot. I remember in my British Lit class, we'd have to, on exams, read an excerpt from a piece of poetry or prose, then identify the author, the title of the work, the time period it was from, as well as the significance of the line. And this became especially difficult when all of the works we were being tested on were from the same era. So preparing looked like reading a lot and making up cheesy, helpful acronyms to remember what all belonged together. It was unrealistic to prepare by memorizing every poem because that would have been nearly impossible. Instead, I needed to prepare by memorizing how different pieces of the puzzle related to one another. When I went through the Watermark Institute, preparation for our big stand-and-deliver exam looked like a lot of repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Practice made perfect, so to speak, or at least practice made you prepared. How and why we prepare matters. If we fail to prepare, we're probably going to fail. And if our preparation is motivated by fear, pride, or any other sinful driving force, we might pass the exam, but morally, we'll be decaying. How and why we prepare matters. And when it comes to Numbers 15, one commentator says this. Chapter 15 is another collection of texts designed to prepare the people for their life in the land. Let me read that again. Chapter 15 is another collection of texts designed to prepare the people for their life in the land. Hence, this chapter is one of promise. Though a great deal has happened and the results are overwhelming for the adult population involved, nonetheless, there is a sense in which we may say that nothing has happened. God has pardoned his people chapter 14, verse 20, the second generation will enter the land, 1431, and preparations still need to be made for that period after the conquest and the achieving of normalcy in Canaan, which means, hey, normal life will come. The Israelites won't be nomads forever, and Israel needs to prepare. The commentator continues, it seems that the connecting thought between chapters 14 and 15 is the phrase in 15:2, when you enter the land of your dwelling places that I am giving to you, which ties to 14:31, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. One generation of Israelites rejected the promised land, so another will enter. And here we see God making sure this new generation is well prepared. Lest there be the mistaken notion that the laws of Sinai, including the laws of offerings, had been abrogated or replaced, the Lord explicitly cited some of them again. The Lord supplemented and completed the laws of sacrifice he had given formerly. These laws relate to life in the land, the commentator concludes. So what does it look like to prepare well? Preparing well means remembering what God has proclaimed. Preparing well means remembering what God has proclaimed and promised. In Numbers 15, we really see God remind the Israelites of seven or so laws. 
The first reminder is found in verses 1 through 16, and one commentator puts it like this. The first of these laws had reference to the connection between meat or meal offerings and drink offerings on the one hand, and burnt offerings and slain or peace offerings on the other. The Israelites were to accompany every burnt offering and every peace offering with a meal offering and a drink offering of wine. The amounts of meal and wine varied, and these variations are clear in the text. An ephah, E-P-H-A-H, an ephah, was about a bushel, and a hin, H-I-N, was about a gallon. Since grapes were large and abundant in Canaan, wine played a significant part in Israel's offerings. This offering expressed gratitude for the grapes of the land. The priests poured drink offerings out. They did not drink them. And what does all that mean for us today? While we no longer have to make these type of offerings because of Christ's finished work on the cross, we can remember that Paul spoke of his life as a drink offering poured out as a sacrifice to God. Or Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now the commentator continues because what about the second law? The second law, or the second law we're reminded of here in this chapter that the Israelites were reminded of, the second law required the presentation of a cake made from the first fruits of the land to God. The offerer was to lift it up before God and then give it to the priest. This offering expressed gratitude for the grain of the land. And the third law dealt with the sin offering. Here, sins of omission are in view, whereas the law in Leviticus 4, verses 13 through 21, dealt more with sins of commission. In both cases, the sin offering covered sins committed unintentionally. This law also covered some deliberate sins if the sinner offered public confession, full restitution, and a sin offering. The commentator concludes. Now, if you haven't listened to the Leviticus bonus episode, I highly encourage you to do so as I think it'll be really helpful in furthering your understanding of this passage in particular. But in short, the Israelites were commanded to make five types of offerings. Some told God, thank you, whereas others told God, I'm sorry. And at the end of this section or this passage, we see a distinction made between unintentional sin and intentional sin. So these are the types of behaviors that would require the I'm sorry offering. And the response, though, to these two types of behaviors varied. In verses 27 through 31, we read in the NLT, If one individual commits an unintentional sin, the guilty person must bring a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest will sacrifice it to purify the guilty person before the Lord, and that person will be forgiven. These same instructions apply both to the native-born Israelites and to the foreigners living among you. But those who brazenly violate the Lord's will— whether native-born Israelites or foreigners, have blasphemed the Lord and they must be cut off from the community since they have treated the Lord's word with contempt and deliberately disobeyed his command. They must be completely cut off and suffer the punishment for their guilt. So unintentional sins, you could be made right with God in the community by making a sacrifice. But intentional sins led to people being cut off from the community. How are we to make sense of this? Well, Dr. Constable answers the question like this. These offerings did not cover sins committed in defiance of God. In these cases, the sinner was to die. That's verses 30 through 31. Moses recorded a case involving such a sin in the next section, the case of the defiant Sabbath breaker. That's what we read about in verses 32 through 36. 
This incident illustrates the fate of the Israelite or the foreigner in Israel who deliberately, intentionally violated the law of the Sabbath observance. It clarifies the meaning of defiant sin as well as what it means to be cut off from among his people, from among God's people. Violation of this law drew the death penalty. That's actually Exodus 31 and 35. God revealed on this occasion that such an offender was to die by stoning, see Leviticus 22, whereas Moses had previously recorded the penalty. He had not explained the method of execution. It's getting very specific here. Now, there are other occasions on which Moses had asked God for guidance in difficult cases. These appear in chapter 9, chapter 27, and Leviticus 24. So this isn't an isolated occasion. Dr. Constable concludes, The purpose of these narratives is to show that God's will is not expressed in a once-for-all way. In Israel's ongoing relationship with God, he continued to make his will known to them, and they continued to play a part in the process. Good preparation also involves continued conversation continued conversation with God. Think about it. If we walk into a hard conflict resolution conversation, we want to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading as we have that conversation, not just in the morning when we had our quiet time. Good preparation involves continued conversation with God. He continues to reveal the way we should go and the words we should use. Lastly, Numbers 15 concludes with an interesting section about tassels. The tassels were a visual reminder to keep the law. Maybe the reminder was presented in response to the Sabbath-breaking incident previously mentioned. We can't say for sure. Nonetheless, God commanded a visual reminder. Remember, preparing well means remembering what God has proclaimed and promised. Verses 39 through 41 read, When you see the tassels, you will remember and obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. The tassels will help you remember that you must obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that I might be your God. I am the Lord your God. So here's some helpful thoughts on the tassel one commentator pulled from an article about the ancient Near East. Number one, to understand the significance of the tassel, we must first understand the significance of the hem. The hem of the outer garment or robe made an important social statement. It was usually the most ornate part of the garment, and the more important the individual, the more elaborate and the more ornate was the embroidery on the hem of his or her outer robe. Number two, the requirement of a blue cord in the tassels lends further support to the notion that the tassels signified nobility because the blue dye used to color the threads was extraordinarily expensive. And lastly, number three. The Bible apparently assumed that even the poorest Israelite could afford at least four blue threads, one for each tassel. Thus, weaving a blue thread into the tassel enhances its symbolism as a mark of nobility. Dr. Constable noted, The article just quoted also contains reproductions of ancient Near Eastern pictures of people wearing garments with tassels on them. The Israelite was to fasten the tassel to the garment with a blue thread, or it had to contain a blue thread. The blue color, as noted in our study of the tabernacle coverings, probably symbolized heavenly origin and royalty. Thus, God apparently wanted the blue thread to remind the Israelites of their holy calling as a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19.6. These tassels reminded the Israelites of their privileged position in the world and their noble and holy calling. 
The tassels were clearly a visual aid for the Israelites and probably produced a conditioned response in the minds of pious Jews. They did not bring to mind any one commandment, but reminded the observer that he should observe all of God's laws. He was distinct by virtue of his calling, as was the garment he observed. Perhaps God also chose the outer garment because the Israelites were as his outer garment by which the world recognized him. His people were to be an adornment to him, Titus 2.10. Thus, God specified something that would warn his people before they sinned. He did not just specify punishment after they sinned. Let me read that last line again because we're learning something important about the heart of God. God specified something in his instruction here in this chapter that would warn his people before they sinned. He did not just specify punishment after they sinned. God gave the Israelites instruction to remind themselves, to warn them before they sinned. He didn't just list out punishments for afterward. Remember, preparing well means remembering what God has proclaimed and promised. We serve a just God who wants what's best for his people. Be reminded of that truth today. And as always, I'm so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. Hey, we want to thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Did you know that you can help support Join the Journey by rating and reviewing this podcast? And if you're willing, we'd love it if you subscribe because the more you download, the easier it will be for new friends to find the podcast.